Furthermore, the equation E is equal mc squared. Hello and welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio podcast. I am Isaiah Hankel with Cheeky Scientist. We have a great show for you today. This is the radio show for PhDs who want to get hired into their first or next job in industry and who want to thrive in business. Thank you for joining us. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first radio show of 2020. Isaiah here, and very excited to have you on with us. If you can see and hear me okay, can you say hello in the chat box? We're just going to get set up here. Make sure you change your drop-down menu to all panelists and attendees. If you're in the association private group watching us over here, like you, Vinod, and Jess, and Rinda, you can join us in, in Zoom, and you'll get a better view of the screen. But Happy to have you watch us there as well. Lots of great things to talk about. I'm just going to get a few things set up on my screen and then we're going to kick off the first radio show of 2020. Very excited to do so. We have a great guest on today. We will be talking uh, with a best-selling author of two different books, Whitney Johnson. We'll be bringing her on. Very excited to do this. Uh, we wanted to have an excellent show for the first show of 2020. I'm going to click the go live button here on the fan page. Lisa, if you can let me know when that's live. Great to see everybody on. Thank you for being here. Welcome to a, another Cheeky Scientist radio show. This is the first Cheeky Scientist radio show of 2020. If you are watching us on uh, social, a social media stream, or you're listening to the recording, make sure you go to Apple or SoundCloud or your favorite podcast subscriber and subscribe to us or your favorite podcast uh, subscription list and subscribe to the Cheeky Scientist radio show. We have a lot of great shows lined up for you in 2020. They stream live every Tuesday after today. So this is the last Wednesday radio show we're doing. We're moving to Tuesdays after this. Great to see everybody on. If you can see and hear me, if you're one of our Cheeky Scientist Associates and you have special members access to the show and you're here with us in Zoom, please say hello in the chat box if you would. If you're in the private group watching us, hello. And remember, you can join us on Zoom as well. We have a lot of great things coming out in 2020. One of them is our new website. Some of you have been seeing the new logo behind me and you've seen some of the, the updated branding on social media, we have the new website out and I'll show it to you here very briefly. And at the same time, I'm going to tell you about a new webinar we have coming up. We have a 2020 resume webinar. So 12 industry resume secrets proven to get PhDs hired in 2020. This is happening Thursday, that's tomorrow, January 9th, 1 p.m. and 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's on our new website. For those of you listening by audio, go to cheekyscientist.com slash CSA-resume-webinar and get your ticket. We have a limit of only 500 people and this webinar does fill up. So make sure you get on this list. If you are an associate, don't worry. You'll get special access to this. You don't need to sign up. Um, but for those of you who are watching the live stream, 
you're not a Cheeky Scientist associate, definitely go to this page and sign up. We do have our very first Cheeky Scientist Association enrollment coming up. If you go to CheekyScientist.com slash association dash learn dash more, you can get on the wait list for this year's enrollment. Do so now. We have a lot of great things in store. We are completely updating the Cheeky Scientist Association dashboard and materials. Those of you that are in the program now, you've started to see this. In fact, if you're here with us in Zoom, let us know if you've seen it. If you haven't, you should log into your dashboard and check it out. But if you're not, go to this page, scroll down, get on the wait list. We have a lot of great webinars, bonuses in store for you, and we will teach you more and more about how to get a job and how to accelerate your career, even if you already have a position. We'll help you get into your first or next industry position. So this is the new website. I'm gonna show it to you really quick. If you go to the homepage, cheekyscientist.com, you can see our eBooks, our blogs, all of our programs in one place. Lots of great new material for you to explore. We have an updated blog and our newest blog is five things that qualify PhDs to get hired as clinical research associates. We have a lot of PhDs with no clinical experience getting into these clinical roles. They pay very well. It keeps you close to science. It, it keeps you close to, I think, the overall purpose for a lot of us, which is bettering humanity, uh, patient's care, patient care. Check out this article. There's some great insights here. And again, you're going to enjoy the read because it has the new branding, the, the new features, the new formats, makes everything look a lot cleaner. So I want to talk to you a little bit about resumes in preparation for tomorrow's resume webinar. Now, in, two, in 2019, there were three main resumes, three main resumes that employers were, were looking for. One was the what we call the gold standard industry resume. Uh, the gold standard, if you are a Cheeky Scientist associate, we give you templates for this. It starts with your professional summary, goes into your work experience, then into your education, technical skills, and uh, honors, awards, and hobbies. Uh, there's, there's that resume type. Then there's the functional resume, where in that work experience section, this is especially valuable if you don't have industry experience, you focus on your skills instead of highlighting academic job titles like graduate research assistant or postdoctoral fellow and the universities, which rarely show up in applicant tracking system software. Uh, they're not keywords that employers are looking for. Um, instead, you focus on skills. So you bold the skills and then underneath, right? So the skills are where the job titles would be. And then underneath you say gained as a graduate research assistant or gained as a postdoctoral research fellow. The third type we talked a lot about at the end of last year, the sidebar resume. This is becoming even more popular in 2020, but beyond that, there are two other resume types that you need to be aware of for five total. Things continue to get more and more competitive for the top careers, even though PhD hiring is up higher than it's ever been. If you're not hired yet, that doesn't mean anything other than you're invisible. You're very valuable in industry, you're likely invisible. Understanding these five different resumes will help you. We're gonna talk about them tomorrow. What you can start doing to get your resume ready for 2020 is looking at the job postings for the jobs you want to get into, whether they're internal job postings, if you already have a job, other job postings online, read through them, do your research. As a PhD, we always talk about the three transferable skills that you have above and beyond any other job candidate. The first one is research, the, the ability to collect information and data, including job postings whether it's going to informational interviews, reading different job postings, you can start to understand the language of your industry, of your specific part of industry that you want to get into. 
it's very important for you to know the words that people are using. It's like learning a foreign language. The second transferable skill, your ability, ability to analyze this information, whether it's information analysis, data analysis, very valuable. And by the way, those two skills, McKinsey and company released a report at the end of last year saying that there's a 20% deficit in the job market for those two skills. What are they again? Information data collection, which is research, and information data analysis. Your ability to draw conclusions, see trends in the data, uh, solve problems is very valuable. We'll, we'll be talking about that today. Um, beyond this, the third transferable skill, information processing, learning quickly. This is so important for those of you who don't have industry experience. You're like, how can I compete with somebody who has 10 years? Because you can learn faster than them. If anything, having industry experience and working for other companies, it works against job candidates because very often they think that they know everything already. They learned something from another company, but the problem is, is that the new company they want a job at does things completely differently. And so it can be seen as a deterrent, as something that's not going to help them get hired, as something that an employer has to overcome. They don't want somebody who thinks they're worth 10 times what they're actually worth in terms of salary. They don't want somebody who thinks they know it all already. They don't want somebody who has this sense of entitlement, who's learned another company's processes. They want somebody fresh, who's eager to learn, and who learns quickly. But a lot of you aren't putting this on resumes or LinkedIn. We're going to talk about all of this and much, much more on tomorrow's resume webinar, the 2020 resume webinar, which is on January 9th, 1 p.m. and 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So with that, we are going to move forward to the first section uh, for today. Well, I guess it's the second section after the, uh, the PhD Advantage uh, section, which is a new section we're doing in 2020, which is what I just did. The advantages that you have as, as a PhD. Every radio show, we're gonna be talking about those advantages. We're gonna give you points of leverage that you can apply right away. So again, if you're watching this live, you're hearing it somewhere else for the first time, go to iTunes podcasts, go to SoundCloud, subscribe to the podcast. These podcasts will be delivered to you. It's a totally different experience. We add a few new things to the audio versions. So make sure you're subscribing there. The second section we're gonna go into is the show me the data section. One of our most popular sections for our radio show, shows in 2019, 2018 and 2017. So of course we're continuing it in 2020. And with that, I'm going to bring on Mary Truscott to go through the Show Me the Data section with me. And I'm going to say a quick hello to Adrian and Anna, Amanda, Cindy, Deepak, Greg, Aino, Jennifer, Jason. Great to see you all on. Paul, great to see you on too. Thank you all for joining. It's great to see you associates here. Irene, Gia Ying, Katarina, Maria, Michelle, Nadia, Upali, Schwab, Unu, Valentina. Good to see you on. And with that, we have Mary. Mary, good to see you. How are you? I'm great, Isaiah. How are you? Good. Hi, everyone. Happy 2020. Happy New Year. Thank you. Happy New Year to you. Are you ready for the first Show Me the Data of the New Year? Sure am. <laughs> All right. So I know this is a topic that both you and I like a lot, which is creativity, being proactive, innovation, uh, being disruptive right? in, in a good way. Uh, Disruptiveness is very valuable in the industry, arguably more valuable than it's ever been before. Um, and this is something we want you to leverage in 2020. You wanna see disruptiveness as your key to putting yourself ahead of other job candidates, ahead of that other person work that you're working with uh, that you're trying to get a promotion instead of, okay? Disruption is something that a lot of PhDs tend to shy away from because it's a word that makes it sound bad, but it's actually a very good thing. It just means your ability to innovate. 
uh, your ability to look at things critically, not people, but information and data critically. Um, and, and a lot of it comes back to core concepts and skills like adaptability, proactiveness, et cetera. So we're gonna go through the first couple of figures very quickly here so that you understand the context of disruptiveness, of being able to be proactive, problem solve, innovate, and, and, and adapt. So this is a Barclays life skills report, looking at seven skills that have been identified as being keys to succeeding in the future workplace. This again is a Barclays report, uh, skill builder partnership and world economic forum framework. And the skills are, Mary, you wanna read them? Sure, the skills are resilience, proactivity, problem solving, communication, creativity, leadership, and adaptability. Yeah, and as PhDs, sometimes we look at these skills and we're like boring or, oh, wow, thanks for the amazing insights on the importance of being creative, but they sound simple. And so we tend to shy away from them because we like to overcomplicate words as PhDs. But remember, hiring managers, recruiters, they don't have PhDs, number one. They're looking for like the simplest word to explain what they need. They're looking for you to actually put on your resume, your LinkedIn profile, leadership, problem solving. Okay, they're not looking for some the most complex five word way to explain your ability to solve a problem. So that's why we're showcasing these skills here uh, simply. I love this next figure, the title, more than 60% of employers identified adaptability along with communication skills as have grow having growing importance. So when we say disruptiveness, we don't mean like being mean or shaking things up for no reason, fixing things that aren't necessarily broke. Sometimes that's okay, but that's not what we're really talking about. We're talking about being able to ride the wave of rapid change that's happening in terms of technology and industries. I mean, PhDs are being hired for jobs now that didn't exist five years ago, and that PhDs would have never have thought to have been hired into five years ago. I mean, we've seen things like medical science liaison, user experience researcher, all, I mean, uh, companies like Home Depot, Hilton, companies that would have never hired PhDs are hiring them because as a PhD, you can ride these disruptive waves. How do you do it? By being adaptable and by having these other core skills. So from left to right, we're looking at a lot of uh, bubbles with percentages in them. And there's three different levels of bubbles. So there's, what is there total? Seven here? Yeah, seven bubbles. Figure one is the proportion of employers considering each of the seven skills we just discussed. Um, and in terms of have they become important over the last 10 years? Figure two, are they important now? Figure three, what'll be important in the next 10 years? So again, resilience, proactivity, problem solving, communication, creativity, leadership, and adaptability. What are the trends, Mary, in terms of what was important in the past, what's important now, and what's gonna be important in the future, just in the context of those seven skills? Yeah, yeah, so just, I mean, I, what struck me is in the top line, um, what the employers think are, um, have become more important over the last 10 years, and about half of them have said for all of the, the different types of skills. Mm. But adaptability is the, is the highest, and it's, and it's definitely growing, right? Because that's, we see things change so quickly, whether it's IT or you know, medicine, anything. Um, you have to be adaptable. You have to know about these changes. You have to be able to go with the changes or even initiate them in a more senior role, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's the way you phrase a question really impacts the way somebody answers it, right? So it's not a surprise that they think everything was important in the past 10 years or much higher importance than they re really had a hard time projecting um, in the future. 
but what you what you can see is that problem solving communication and adaptability is the most important so if you're looking for three things to put on your resume your linkedin profile problem solving communication adaptability your way to stay on top of trends in industry always be open to problem solving that's something i don't think enough phds talk about you are incredible at gathering information so that you can identify problems find the right problem to solve and then solve it um, this makes you great problem solvers makes you very adaptable if we move forward to look at an educator's view, so this is basically academia's view. This is another figure. We're looking at the academia, academia's view of, of what's important in the next 10 years. Same seven skills, the ranking, some similarities, some differences. Uh, we're looking at uh, bar graphs here, and I think that it's, it's, uh, they're ranking in terms of how important. So we have not important at all on the left, all the way up to a scale of seven seven being extremely important. So what's the, the most important skill according to educators, Marilyn? Communication. Communication. But two is different, right? Two is something that the people in industry didn't say was quite as high, but it's all, but here for the educators, it's almost as high as communication. What is it? Yeah, resilience. It's great what? to see that. Yeah, it's not a surprise to see that in uh, academia, <laughs> first yeah. industry, right? So yeah. with things, with the academic system so broken, uh, seeing resilience as being uh, important makes a lot of sense. And I think also the nature of a work as a PhD, you have to deal with rejection a lot, a lot more in industry. That's why we have so many associates who get, job in get their jobs in industry and they're like, oh, this is fun. I like this. I'm happy. My team and I get along. Not that everywhere has problems, of course, but it is, it's different. You have to know if you can survive academia, if you can be resilient in academia, you can survive anywhere. And, and the data continues to show this. So figure five, employers view on which skills are lacking among potential recruits. This was, this was surprising to me. So it's the same seven skills, but what, what's number one in terms of, again, the question is, which skill is lacking the most among potential job candidates? What's number one? Can you scroll up a bit? Oh, yeah. <laughs> there you go. I didn't memorize this. Leadership. Leadership. Yeah. Was that surprising to you? I mean, it was surprising to me that nobody put leadership in the top three for any of the other questions, but then when they got asked the question, what's more, most important, it's leadership. Why do you think that is? Um, I guess maybe is it that there's an assumption or that hasn't changed over time. I mean, they're talking about what was the most important um, over the last 10 years. Um, I guess you don't notice it unless, you, unless it's absent or you have an expectation. Yeah. I guess there could be a lot of explanations, yeah. And so again, the, we all know this as PhDs, the way you ask a question is gonna drastically influence the answers. So don't discount leadership, it's very important. Leadership is a great word. It's a much better word to use more than management, right? Especially if you could ask that question, one of my favorite responses to the question of where do you wanna see yourself in five years at a company, which is a very common question, one of the top three most common questions you'll get. Don't say I wanna see myself in a management position because you're basically telling the hiring manager, recruiter, or whoever, I wanna be your manager. Say leadership, leadership position. Um, just thought to mention that. This is a new report, the UK Commission for Employment and Skills report. It explored the interrelationship between a career adaptability and employability, looking at five career adaptive competencies, control, curiosity, commitment, confidence, and concern. Okay, so these, these adaptability characteristics though themselves, so, the, so to paint the picture here, they, 
they, they have to do with self-regulation, flexibility, proactivity, and your ability to plan. They call it planfulness, which I don't think is a, think is a word. But uh, So your ability to adapt, if you're asking, what is this? It means you've got to be flexible, of course, but you've got to regulate, right? Self-regulate, whether that means emotional regulation, handling stress on your own, um, being proactive to change, to keep up with change, and then actually planning for change. But then they have these five C's that they talked about. Um, so career adaptability, competencies, they talk about concern, control, curiosity, competence. What was the fifth one? Commitment. Uh, commitment. Which I guess they decided to leave off of that figure, but that's okay. Um, so yeah, so concern, control, curiosity, competence. Those are the four that uh, they continue to look at throughout the report. And that's what we're going to go into. We have some, some more intricate figures coming up here. So we're going to go a little bit quickly through this. And, and we're going to take those four C's which again are concern, control, curiosity, competence, and just for your understanding, concern means like caring, actually caring about what you do. This is less of a problem for most PhDs because we like a lot of things that we're doing in science or engineering, humanities, et cetera, is meant to better humanity. It has to do with knowledge and creating knowledge and then translating that knowledge into something that helps people. Control has to do with responsibility, taking responsibility for your work, curiosity, no explanation needed, and just confidence, just Knowing that you can learn, it's almost like self-efficacy, knowing that you can solve problems, not doubting your ability to learn, not thinking you know everything, but knowing that you can learn things that you don't know yet. So two sides of the career, the career resources coin, career adaptability resources and the imposter phenomenon. So this is interesting. This is in the Journal of Vocational Behavior. And if you didn't know, things like motivation studied for decades uh, there's the big five personality traits, which we'll mention here in a minute. There's been studied for decades. This stuff is, is studied in behavioral psychology, behavioral economics, economics, et cetera. It's a very, very important uh, field for you to understand, which is why we pull from it quite a bit um, when it comes to people's motivations, like employers' motivations, when it comes to things that you need to do in industry, like searching for a job, getting a job, and excelling in a job afterwards. So this is a report. So results from 289 university students looking at career success predictors uh, indicated a positive effect of core evaluations on career planning, career exploration, and occupational self-efficacy, which again is knowing that you can learn what you need to learn, and a negative effect on career decision-making difficulties through adaptability resources. So think of it this way. When change happens, like needing to get a job, needing to transition into industry or needing to get a different job, your next job, you have to be ready to change. They're calling this adaptive readiness. Adaptive readiness leads to pulling from these adaptability resources that you have internally, have or don't have. Concern, control, curiosity, competence, those four Cs. The maladaptive resources are imposter syndrome. So basically, you can be ready for change and then you go in one of two directions. You go, I'm ready to adapt and you care about what you're doing, you exert some control, as in you take responsibility over learning what you need to learn, you show that curiosity to learn, and then you have confidence in your ability to learn. Or you go the other route that we see a lot in academia, which is you, be, you feel that sense of imposter syndrome, and you think you can't do it because it's outside your current realm of expertise. Mary, can you talk a little bit more about that? About imposter syndrome? Yeah. Sure, yeah. I mean, we go what through a pretty intense situation. What do you think's the switch? Like, why do you think some people go the imposter route, which is the maladaptive route, rather than the adaptive route? 
I mean, well, they lack some of the one, at least one of the four C's, right? Confidence. It could be they come from a work environment where they are constantly put down um, or, you know, they're supposed to share credit for things that they, they really did. You know, there are just so many scenarios that we see in academia. Um, I would think that curiosity would not be something that would, you know, uh, be, be, be something that they lack um, coming from grad school. But yeah, just that something happened in their experience where they think that I got here, but I don't deserve to be here. And I, maybe I don't deserve to be in, in industry either. Um, that's my take on it. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think I actually like what you're saying because it means if you feel a sense of imposter syndrome, which is completely normal, just ask yourself which of these four C's you think you're lacking. Maybe you just don't care about what you're doing, which is uh, important. Maybe you're looking at getting into a job and you feel a sense of imposter syndrome or sluggish because you don't actually care about that job. Maybe it's going to pay you well or give you a great title, but you don't want to be a management consultant or an MSL. You want to stay at the bench or maybe the opposite. You really don't want to be at the bench. You want to get away from the bench and do something different. Maybe you're not taking your responsibility over. Maybe you think it's somebody else's fault. Oh, it's their fault that I can't get ahead or somebody else owes me something or academia should have helped me more. Look, we all understand that most of us as PhDs didn't get the training we needed to be successful in industry, but at a certain point, you've got to take responsibility and say, it's on me now to take my career into my own hands. Curiosity, are you, are you approaching it from a discovery mindset? Like, wow, this is a whole new world I can learn about. It's very exciting. Instead of, oh, I can't believe I got to do more work. And then just know your ability. If you have a PhD, you have the self-efficacy. Look back, get, get confident based on your past results. If you have a PhD or about to get one, you're in the top 1.6% of the population in terms of education. So just go back to those seats. Finally, in terms of adapting responses. So once you get through, whether you, you get through directly, right, through concern, control, curiosity, or confidence, or have to go back through there after feeling a sense of imposter syndrome, that's where you take action. With career planning, career decision-making difficulties, like deciding how many of you are stuck actually knowing which career path you want to take. And some of you stay stuck, stuck there for months. So you actually have to decide. That's how you adapt, making a decision. Career planning, career exploration, and then occupational self-efficacy, knowing that no matter what job is out there, you can do it. And as a PhD, you can. I've seen PhDs from all different backgrounds get into jobs from all other different types of backgrounds. that You never would have thought engineers getting into medical science liaison jobs, people with no clinical experience, even humanities PhDs getting into positions that are hardcore STEM or even clinical. Okay, so you have to know that you can do it because you have those transferable skills that transfer to any industry. Research, data information analysis, fast learning, speed of uh, processing information. So this is, this the, there's a couple other figures that we're gonna go through. I wanna make sure we get through this one though. So this is career adaptability and the big five. So if you've ever tried to learn academically about motivation, there's these big five personality traits that come up over and over again, not just with motivation, but just about anything in behavioral psychology. The big five are neuroticism. What's that? Anybody know here? Any PhDs familiar with that? <laughs> a little bit of obsessiveness, right? Can be very healthy. Too much of it, not so much. Extroversion. Extroversion here does not mean where you get your energy, whether, you know, like, Introversion, extroversion, a lot, uh, a lot of times we refer to it as I get my energy, I get recharged when I'm alone, or I get my energy around other people. Here it just means your ability to engage with others. 
to be open to communicate. Intellect, imagination, agreeableness. Now, agreeableness doesn't mean uh, you just agree blindly with anything. It means that you're willing to realize that other people have good ideas too, or other people might know more than you, right? So you can actually work for somebody who, who has learned a process before you and you're open to learning it from them. And they say, well, you can't do it for that reason. You gotta do this. And then you have a sense of trust in them for a while <laughs> until you learn it. Hopefully that'll help because I, I know a lot of you might have a problem with that word, at least I do. Uh, conscientiousness is the final one, right? So uh, being meticulous in your work, conscientious. So we're looking at this figure here. Uh, I'll explain it a little bit more. It's from the Australian Collaboratory for Career Employability and Learning. Uh, it found that individuals with an adaptive ready profile reported significantly, significantly higher levels of career adaptability. Right, so the more adaptive you are, the better you are in your job search, the better you are in your overall career. So how does being adaptive relate to these big five traits? You wanna walk us through this chart, Mary? Sure, so um, the middle line is sort of ordinary, um, I guess middle of the road for all of these, uh, these traits. And then um, we see rigidness, so someone who doesn't engage, um, who sticks to their ways, um, is not ad adaptable, is not going to do well with the, the change. Um, yes. And if they're not agreeable or willing to go along with something to trust a process and to, to change and to get involved, uh, that's really gonna hold them back. Um, versus someone who's adaptive ready, um, is, is ready to engage um, the extroversion piece and then agreeable, like you said, they're willing to, to get involved. Yeah, we see the biggest, uh, we see the biggest peaks here with extroversion and agreeableness, like Marie said. Yep. So if you're, you're trying to narrow it down to two things that'll help you adapt more, be open. Ask what if, right? Go into that discovery mindset that made you uh, a PhD in the first place. Be willing to connect with new people, being willing to ask questions, be willing to ask for help. That's what the extroversion part is. And then be willing to go along with what somebody says and at least try it out. Say, what if? Of course, you're going to want data to back it up eventually, information, you want to learn everything. But in the beginning, somebody else might know more than you. And so you'll have to trust them to a certain extent that the way they've been doing it or whatever, there's something there that you just don't know yet. Um, instead of waiting for to know everything before acting, right, which is uh, something that can really hold you back in your career. So try to have that profile. And if you're a little bit neurotic, it's okay, it looks like. <laughs> the, adaptive ready, the adaptive ready people versus the ordinary people, they're about the same on the neurotic scale. So if you're a little bit obsessive, that's okay. You can leverage that to your advantage. Just don't let it get out of control. And that'll take us to the end of the show me the data section. Mary, what was your favorite part of the data? Um, I just the, the influence or the um, adaptability, the presence of that, you know, life is changing, the world is changing. Uh, there's just so many examples from academia where we've had to adapt, but I think um, that plus the willingness to adapt is something that I think if a, if a lot of PhDs can embrace, they're going to be really successful in their job search. Absolutely. All right. So please thank Mary in the chat box for coming on for the show me the data section. Thank you, thank you Mary. Great to see you. We are going to move right along to our next segment. And our next segment is our leadership interview. And we have a very special guest on today, Whitney Johnson, who you're seeing on the screen here. Uh, I'll show her LinkedIn profile, her website, her books. We have a very special guest on today, Whitney Johnson, who you're seeing on the screen here. Uh, I'll show her LinkedIn profile, her website, her books. 
here shortly, but I want to mention she is the CEO of WLJ Advisors and one of the 50 leading business thinkers in the world is named by Thinkers 50. She is an expert on helping high growth organizations develop high growth individuals. She is an award winning author. Let me scale this down for the picture there. She is an award winning author, world class keynote speaker, frequent lecturer for Harvard Business School's corporate learning and an executive coach former award-winning Wall Street stock analyst and popular contributor to the Harvard Business Review. Very impressive. She's an innovative and disruptive theorist. She is the author of the best-selling Build an A-Team, Play to Their Strengths and Lead Them Up the Learning Curve, and the critically acclaimed Disrupt Yourself. I love the cover of this book. I'll show it to you in a minute. Putting the Power of Disruptive Innovation to Work. She hosts a weekly Disrupt Yourself podcast. I highly recommend you subscribe to that as well and publishes a popular weekly newsletter. She is on LinkedIn, so let's show her how active we are as PhDs looking for jobs on LinkedIn. Connect with Whitney on LinkedIn. Reach out the cheeky way. Tell her thank you for the value that we know she's gonna add to this show. Uh, her LinkedIn profile is linkedin.com slash in slash Whitney Johnson altogether. And this is her website, incredible website. I recommend going to it during the show, Whitney Johnson. Uh, check out all the freebies she has to offer. Check out her book. See, there's the book cover I told you about. Amazing, right? I love that, Disrupt Yourself. Great book. Go, I'm gonna show you the Amazon link now. Make sure you go and get that book uh, immediately as well as her newest book, Build an A-Team. Uh, so we have Disrupt Yourself here. Oh wait, which one's, I thought I had it right. Oh, Disrupt Yourself is the newest book. That's why it's the best cover. Uh, get, go to Build an A-Team. That's 2018 and then 2019. Wow, back to back, disrupt yourself. We have all the links in the chat box for you. We'll put them in the post show notes as well and we will return to them one last time uh, after the interview with Whitney. And with that, I'm gonna bring Whitney on with us. And we're gonna talk to her about what it means to be disruptive in industry and how it can help your career. So I know we have Whitney on here. Do me a favor in the chat box as she comes on and say hello, Whitney. Thank you for being with us. Hi, Whitney. Hi, Isaiah. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for joining us. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, it's very exciting to, to have you on. I really, really enjoyed uh, your book uh, about being disruptive. Love the book cover, as I said. And I wanted to start by asking you, because we talked a little bit about the definition of being disruptive. What, what is it in your mind to be a disruptor? What is a disruptor? Yeah. Well, I think um, for all of you, because you're academics, I mean, we can all think of it, you know, when you were a child and you were sent to the principal's office, uh, you were disrupting in class. Mm -hmm. But the, the term of art is that it's a silly little thing that ends up taking over the world. Like mm -hmm. the um, telephone did to the telegraph, like the automobile did to the horse and buggy. More recently, we've seen Toyota disrupt General Motors and um, Netflix disrupt Blockbuster and now Uber and Lyft are disrupting cabs. Um, so that's what disruption is. It's a, it's a silly little thing that takes over the world. And, and the work that we do and the big insight that I had as I was working with Clayton Christensen at Harvard Business School yeah. is that this theory of disruption, it isn't just about products, it's about people. Uh, you start at the bottom of a ladder, you climb at the top, and then you jump to the bottom of a new ladder, like the children's game, Shoots and Ladders. The, the big difference, of course, with personal disruption, it sounds like it's really the topic of, of your cheeky scientist radio show, is this idea is that with 
personal disruption, you're both, um, you're both uh, Toyota and your General Motors, you're both Netflix and Blockbuster, you're the disruptor and the incumbent because you are disrupting you. So that's my definition or the, the term of art of personal disruption. Yeah, so there's, there's some personal change going on in that disruption and it can be hard. I mean, your identity is a powerful thing, right? So if you're disrupting yes. it, it can cause some, some waves. And one of the biggest areas, which you're very familiar with where this personal disruption happens is when you change career paths. Um, and so, you know, everyone here can, can definitely understand that. What would you say is a, a good way to harness this disruptive energy or see it as a good thing rather than a bad thing? Like yeah. Some people see disruption as it's a bad thing and they're scared of it. The word, you know, used to only mean, uh, only have bad connotations, but now it's kind of a good thing, right? It's a, it's a, it's a healthy thing for both an individual and an organization. Absolutely. So the way that I think about it, and by the way, I did not realize that only 1.8% of the population, I was listening to the prior conversation, had a PhD. My husband has a PhD. He's a biochemist from Columbia. So it's interesting to hear that. That wow. data point. So I and he's now an academic. So I I I cohabit with with a, a PhD. Um, I, I guess the way that I would think. Um, actually, I'm married to him as well. But <laughs> I would think about this for all of you who are listening is this idea. If you if you're familiar with the um, diffusion curve, the the S curve that was popularized by Ian Rogers. Well, I have reimagined re that in the work that I do, and and um, that everybody is on an S curve. Each one of you is on an S curve, and at the bottom of that S curve, you know that growth will be slow, that, or it will feel slow. It's happening, but it feels slow, and so there's this sense of everything's new. It's a jumble of pieces. You don't know how they fit together, which can be a somewhat discouraging, but then you move into the sweet spot of that S curve, and you think about when you were writing your dissertation, you got to this point where you're like, okay, I know what I'm doing, and it's exhilarating, and in a little time, a lot happens, and you're starting to feel very, very competent and confident and engaged, but then you get to the top of that S-curve, and the growth starts to slow down, um, and you're no longer engaged like you were because you're not learning, and, and part of what's happening, you're not getting the dopamine, that, that neurotransmitter, that chemical in your brain. That, that makes you happy. And so the case for disruption is once you get to that top of that S curve, you jump to the bottom of a new S curve, you, you learn, leap and repeat because you need dopamine and dopamine makes you happy. And so when you're willing to do that, your sense of self, your, um, your happiness generally is going to be much higher. And then there's a theoretical aspect of it. And this goes back to the theory of disruptive innovation that was written about in the Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christian. And, Christensen is that when you disrupt your odds of success are six times higher and your revenue opportunity 20 times greater. So there's sort of this practical functional reason for being willing to be disrupted, but there's also an emotional reason is that it literally makes you happy to disrupt. Wow. No, that's fascinating. And, and the question that came to my mind, if it's okay to ask is what if your goal, and I think like a lot of us here, we were trained to go after mastery, right? Or to really try to get beyond the 80% to maybe like the 98% in the field. So right at the top of that S where it's gonna be real slow, can you jump to another S in another area of your life so you feel that dopamine hit and you're learning fast while you stay on a previous S? Or do you have to totally change careers and what you're doing every time yeah. you go to the top of an S? That's a great question. And I think the answer is yes, of course you can. And so I would say there are two answers actually to the question. I think number one is that we're all on multiple S curves at any given time. Mm. 
So you can be on one S curve in terms of your domain expertise. You can be on another as a leader. You can be on another um, within sort of a role that you've taken on. You can be on another as as a parent, as a as a partner, et cetera. So you can be on multiple S curves at any given time. And and if you think about it, you want to optimize, not be at the low end of an S curve in five different areas of your life all at the same time, because they they each each piece of the curve brings its own kinds of challenges. Um, so I think so. The answer is yes. You can be on many S curves at at, at 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 any given time. And if you're at the top of one S curve, you probably want to be at the bottom in other parts of your life. Now, to answer the more specific question, let's say you are a PhD, let's say you are a neuroscientist or you are um, a rocket scientist and you're not necessarily going to jump to a completely different discipline. There are different ways for you to extend out that curve by saying, okay, what else is there for me to learn here? And, and basically you either extend it or you push yourself back in the sweet spot. What else is there for me to learn? Um, how can I configure my team? How can I work on different projects? How can I attack this problem from a different perspective? How can I figure out how to teach it? How do I go from talking about this in a very academic way to a more mainstream sort of way, you know, sort of broaden my, my vocabulary and my ability to talk about it from a layperson's perspective? So there are lots of different ways that you can jump to a small S-curve within a broader S-curve of, of domain expertise that when you have a PhD, you have worked very, very hard and invested many hours at, uh, of your life in order to obtain. Yeah, great points. Thank you. I think that, that that's a very interesting thing to think about is being on multiple S's and how you can optimize them. Now, yeah. in terms of adapting, what you know, on an S or whatever metaphor or framework we want to use, I think you can think of adaptability as a spectrum. Some of us, you know, we all have that friend that can adapt to anything, but they're also kind of a little bit flaky, right? They don't commit to anything. And then there's the people that, you know, they'll change slowly and they're very rigid, they're committing, they're really hard to, to move at all, and, and sometimes they can be left behind. Where do you, how do you find that sweet spot, which I believe you call strategic adaptability? What, what is that, and then how do you train yourself to be strategically adaptive? Yeah, so I think, um, so as I said earlier, you know, everybody's on an S-curve, and so the, the challenge for you is, okay, how do I get really good at learning and then leaping and repeating? How do I get good at disrupting myself? So once I get to the top of an S-curve, how do I do that? Once I'm at the top and, and I've, I've caught my breath and, and, and enjoyed the vista of what I can survey now that I'm at the top of that S-curve, how do I make sure I jump to a new S-curve in a timely fashion? And then once I'm at the bottom of the, that new S-curve, how do I do it effectively um, mm -hmm. as opposed to sort of intuitively the way that we have throughout most of our lives? And so we have a seven-point framework of personal disruption. So we've got the S-curve of learning framework and then a seven-point um, framework of personal disruption. And, and the way that I would suggest that you all think about this in terms of your ability to adapt, it includes a number of things. Number one is how do you find ways to take the right kinds of risks? And we talk about this on one of our podcast episodes, I think it's episode 100, of learning to play where no one else is playing. So mm -hmm. now that you've got this PhD and you've got this deep domain expertise, how do you find ways to say, okay, I know that I know a lot about this one area, but I'm used to talking about it in this particular way. Let's say I've got a PhD in, in geology. How can I take this knowledge and go play in finance and see what I'm gonna see there? And so take the right risk, play where no one else is playing, because there aren't a lot of geologists on Wall Street, for example. Mm -hmm. And what happens?
happens when you have those two things intersect as opposed to going where there are 20 other um, PhDs at, in geology. And so you take the right kinds of risks by playing where no one else is playing, by playing to your distinctive strengths, which is very easy for most of you because you've got these real strengths and this real expertise. Then you figure out how to embrace the constraints. We tend to think, oh, if only I had more time or more money or expertise, then I could be really capable at this. But the fact is we know from the research, it's a law of physics if there are any physicists out there, that you need something to push against in order to gain the momentum and energy to climb an S-curve. And so how do you reframe whatever constraints you find yourself up against into a tool of creation? And that's part of that strategic adaptability. The fourth is, and I'll go through these very quickly, is battle or sense of entitlement, this belief that I have a PhD, therefore I deserve, therefore someone should hire me. There's only 1.8% of me. Well, how do I find a way to talk about what I know how to do in a way that makes it so that other people can understand it. Because every time someone engages with you or hires you, they are effectively jumping to an S new S curve as well. And how you de-risk that for them in the hiring or engaging with you. Number five is take a step back to grow. If you decide that you love, um, love what you've learned, but you want to do something different, sometimes you have to take a step back in order to slingshot forward. Take a job that may feel like not quite as, as prestigious initially because you know over the long term it will catapult you forward. Um, and then give failure its due. Um, one of the things I think is really important is we all understand that we all fail all the time. Yeah. There are certain areas of our life where we've attached shame to that failure. And so if you think about it, failure is never actually the problem when it comes to adaptability, it's the shame. And so how do we do that inner work and so how do we get a PhD in inner work effectively in order to be able to jettison the shame and have that failure just be this iterative strategic adaptability that happens? And then number seven is to be driven by discovery. Um, you know that in doing your research, you had findings and you're like, where did that come from? This is the anomaly. And then you have this gold mine because you decided to look at the anomalies. And I would say it's the same when it comes for your career is to take an opportunity and say, I was not expecting that, but what can I make of that? And what will happen with that? And if you follow those seven points um, of personal disruption, that will be a framework that you can use to adapt to any situation in which you find yourself in your career. I, I love every point. And I think um, I just wanted to reiterate a couple that I thought you, you uh, laid out very, very well, such as the challenge, like the obstacle itself being the way to do to, to go through like you have to go through that because it gives you that tension that you need for motivation and momentum a lot of people don't realize that you think the fact that a job search for example is difficult that tension can be used as energy and like when you lean into that a lot of you have experienced that when you finally decide to lean into it instead of backing away every time it, it can power you through and you do that's when you do gain momentum but i also yeah. like what you talked about in terms of taking a step a lot of people here have their dream job and sometimes it's okay if you're trying to get your first job at industry to take a job related to that. Maybe it's not exactly perfect, not the right company, but you get into that job. You start working in industry, you gain a new network, et cetera. Either way, it, you know, it's, it's like taking a small step back to where you want it to go, but then you can move forward much faster. Right. I think it's just a, a fantastic framework. And I think it's becoming more and more important in today's industry where things are moving very quickly. So both of your books talk about this speed of change. Mm -hmm. 
so what are you seeing? Like if you had to forecast where things are headed in industry, um, especially, you know, tech, biotech, uh, uh, these spaces, pharma, et cetera. Yeah. What can we do to prepare ourselves for this, for this rapid change? Uh, so what I I mean, we, there, there are lots of data points that we could cite in terms of the number of companies that are in the S&P 500 and how that, that turnover just continues to accelerate. And, and, and things will never be as slow again as they are right now. So I think we all intuitively know that. Um, the, the, the frameworks that we've developed are really meant to say, okay, their disruption is going to happen around you. And that is something that's exogenous. It is out of your control. The only thing that is in your control is your ability to adjust and adapt and to disrupt yourself. And when we're willing to disrupt ourselves, when we're willing to figure out how to continually improve, we then have the wherewithal to manage through the change. Uh, and so it's, there's not some silver bullet. If I could do this or this or this, then I could manage through the change. I could make it go away. It's just our ability to cope with it and mm -hmm. to enjoy it and to adapt to it and have it be sort of something that we do a dance with as opposed to something that we resist uh, improves. And then we can enjoy um, what's happening because the fact is is that while some days it can be overwhelming and daunting there has never ever ever been a more exciting time to live because of all of the change that is happening absolutely very very last question and it's very specific for our audience you talked about people getting held back um, by certain constraints one of the biggest constraints a lot of us have is that we think we have very specific training you know, like niche focus that only five people have been trained in, right? Like, like you said with your husband, uh, the thesis, whatever they learned with their thesis, like they're a life scientist and they think they can only get into careers that yeah. say, I need a life scientist. They couldn't get into all the, of course, lots of PhDs have proven them wrong. They can get into anything. They have all these transferable skills. What skills can you develop or what steps can you take to broaden your horizons to, to see more possibilities yeah. um, in an intellectual way, in an academic way? Right. So, so if you want to make a transition, if you want to disrupt yourself and go to something new. So I think this goes back to this idea of everyone's on an S curve and it's a translation problem because the fact is, is that if you've spent 10 or 12 years um, doing something, not only do you have expertise in that area, but there are skill sets that you've had to develop in order to get good at that. You're probably a decent writer. You've probably done some statistical analysis. You've probably done a lot of qualitative interviews. So there are a lot of skills that you have. And so what I would do is think of this as a translation problem of like, okay, I know English, I need to translate to Chinese. So how do they talk about what I know how to do in Chinese? How do they talk about um, what, you know, what I know how to do in German or in, in Yiddish or, you know, in Russian, et cetera. And so, and then take your skills and figure out a way to translate them and talk about it in the language that they speak. So that they look at you and go, oh, I, I get it. I recognize it. This is interesting to me. So yeah. that it's, it's, it's understandable, it's recognizable. And then they can look at the novelty and go, wow, that's really interesting. So this person has done all this, but you've translated into a language that the people, your prospective clients, if you will, customers, that people that you want to hire, you can understand what it is. But you've got all these component pieces, so break it down into those component pieces and then repackage it in a language that they can understand. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Whitney. It's great to see you. Great to meet yeah. you. Great to have you on today. Thank you Thank for you all for your insights. Me. I appreciate it. Take care.
Thank you, Karen. Please thank Whitney in the chat box if you would. Fantastic advice. One of the best oh. interviews that we've had. What a great way to start 2020. Okay, thank you and love, love to see all your wonderful comments. Thanks for being so, um, so lovely. Okay, take care. Have a great day. Bye-bye. So be sure to go to Whitney's LinkedIn page, connect with her there and be sure to check out her book. Get her book on Amazon. Tell her that you got it. Disrupt Yourself. Fantastic book. Excellent cover. It's one of my favorite. I just really, really like it. And um, it's, a, it's a great book for all innovators, for all PhDs. Um, so again, please thank Whitney in the chat box if you haven't yet. Are you a PhD student or postdoc who wants to get an industry job? Are you tired of being paid one third or less of what you are worth in academia? but you don't know where to start. Maybe you've been uploading resumes over and over again, but you haven't heard anything back from an employer. Go to phdsgethired.com and get our free materials on how to get hired in industry. All you have to do is go to phdsgethired.com, put in your name and email address, and we will send you our resume guide, our networking scripts, and our other free trainings to help you start your job search now. Again, just go to phdsgethired.com. We're going to move right along to our inside career guest. Our career interview is Robert Hobley. And I cannot believe that we have not had Robert on before for our career segment. We hadn't. He's given so much back to the association. He's a PhD, transitioned into an industry career, and just an amazing guy. Very excited to bring him on. Uh, he's in a leadership development program. Robbie has his BS and PhD in chemical engineering from Iowa State and the University of Kansas, respectively. His research interest and passion is renewable and sustainable fuels and chemicals, which he studied for 10 years in academia. He joined the association in fall of 2017. At one of his lowest points in academia, he actually had a, a nature featured piece about him. Maybe we can get that link and share it with you in the chat box and we'll put it in the post show notes. Um, through the association, he was able to transition into industry and it was a, a great moment for all of us. Uh, his transition was in 2019 after he graduated uh, with a cornstarch ethanol company called Poet Biorefinery. He was working as a pilot plant engineer at their cellulosic ethanol pilot facility. Uh, he was surrounded and managed by younger BS level engineers so he enrolled in Scientist MBA and the R&D Society, uh, two of Cheeky Scientist Advanced programs. And then a few months later, he got a second transition, a promotion into his current position as the PhD Leadership Development Program um, associate with the world's largest chemical company, BASF. So just amazing. Uh, Robbie's really, he's embodied a lot of the things that we teach at Cheeky Scientist, transition into industry, but then, if you look around, you see that you're being managed by people with their bachelors or their masters only. You have to take it to the next level, learn the language of business. We have the scientist MBA program for that. Depending on your field, we have specific other advanced programs. Robbie went into the R&D Society, and now he's in this leadership position at the biggest chemical company, BASF, uh, chemical company in his field. And with that, we're going to bring on Robbie now. We're going to talk to him about his career path. So I'm going to make you a co-host, Robbie, and you should be able to jump on here. Very excited to have you on. Robbie's LinkedIn profile is linkedin.com slash IN slash RD Hobley, which is H-A-B-L-E. So as Robbie comes on here, I'm going to show his LinkedIn profile really quick. Make sure you connect with Robbie. Ask him any questions that you have. 
And without further ado, here's Robbie. Robbie, good to see you on. How are you? Hey, Isaiah, good. How are you? Can you hear me okay? I can perfectly. All so right. Coming on. I appreciate you being here. Of course. It's always an honor to be on here. This is great. I don't, you haven't been on a radio show, have you? No, just on a post-transition call. So this is cool that I get to kick off 2020 with you. Yeah, very excited for this. So thanks. Yeah, thanks again for being here. And we'll just jump right in. So okay. can you describe what your position is and what you do at BASF? Yeah, so the Leadership Development Program is a rotational program. So it's two years and you do three eight-month rotations at different R&D sites within the company. And so you, you do it all across North America, as well as a, uh, an opportunity to travel internationally to their world headquarters in Germany. And uh, I'm on my first rotation right now. And uh, that assignment has to do with quality control and quality assurance. And so I'm at their pilot scale-up facility and they've, they're taking on a lot of small manufacturing jobs. Um, but they didn't have quite established a quality control lab yet. And so I'm kind of the project lead of, okay, you know, how do we do quality control and how can we make it fit for this group? Um, as well as uh, a big thing right now is digitalization. And so they've got this new software program that they're coming in and trying to introduce and, you know, training people on how to use the software and how to get the most out of that tool. So that's kind of the, the current rotation. And then I'll start my next one uh, in May. And so I'll have a brand new job come, you know, brand new position and have to start all over in a new location uh, the, uh, later on this year. And so what, what were you, what do you think are the skills, the transferable skills or the way you communicated them that allowed you to get into this leadership position, this, this ma essentially management track position? Definitely. I'd say uh, the biggest one is being able to understand uh, your customer and being able to ask a lot of questions. And so that was one of the big interview points um, was, okay, give us a time that you had a customer and you had to meet customer needs and things like that. And that's where the SMBA training really helped. And it was, okay, I, I didn't feel like I had a lot of training in working with customers from my academic standpoint. Um, but then it was that, that mindset change from working with SMBA and it was, well, I've had to deal with, with students as a TA. And so, you know, there's a lot of student needs where it was, hey, I need help with this homework or how do I, how do, I do this problem? Um, and then same with research where we were, we were doing alternative fuel research and it was um, how, to, how to meet the, the demand so that it, the, the alternative fuel we were making was the same as the current petroleum crude that we're doing. And so what are those needs? Um, and I really didn't make that connection or that transition of, you know, this is, you know, I was, I was stuck in an academic mindset where it was all, these are all the technical skills, but then SMBA kind of helped me realize oh, you know, these, these are transferable, they're transferable skills and they can use for a business mindset. And so I was able to answer those questions really accurately and impressively during the interview um, that I really wouldn't have thought of without that kind of further background. No, that's great. And that's exactly what Whitney was just talking about is not mm -hmm. limited by your background, but just seeing how the skills that you have or have learned already can fit into this new context. Yeah. Being the people you TA'd as clients so that you have, you can talk about this client skills is exactly that. Mm -hmm. And we, sometimes we overcomplicate that as PhDs, but I think that's a, that is an excellent example, Robbie. So thanks. Mm -hmm. um, so where, where does this career track lead? I always like to talk in terms of career trajectory. So you yeah. get these, man, these rounds on this management track, this leadership track. Where do you yeah. go from here? Where do people with that kind of training at a company like BASF go? Definitely. And so that was one of the things that I, it's kind of one of my New Year's resolutions is, is to find out more and to talk to these people directly because a lot of the people in the VP or managerial positions, they all say, oh, I was part of the LDP or the PDP program. And, and so you're, you know, you're kind of sitting there going, 
my career goal is to be a people manager, a technical manager, or even a vice president, you know, by the time I retire. And it's really cool to hear that, oh, well, I was in that program 10 years ago or, and those kinds of things. And so now it's the next steps is networking with those people to kind of find out more of those specifics, but just within the company and from talking to people at lunch and everything and, and other people saying, oh, you need to go talk to this person. This person, you know, has gone through that route and, and kind of traject that way. But and so I'm still kind of in the the job, the job search for jobs transition zone. So I'm doing those informational interviews, but inside the company. Um, but yeah, it's really exciting to see that, that, you know, that's kind of the career directory I wanted was, you know, have my technical skills complement my managerial and leadership skills. Um, and it's really cool to see that people that were in the program are, you know, VPs of operations and research and, and those kinds of things. So it's really exciting. Yeah, it's amazing. And I think we don't, we probably don't talk enough about this, but you can get hired into a management track or a leadership track position where you're doing these kind of rounds, like some like the rounds you would do uh, through different labs or different classrooms or clinics or whatever. You can yeah. do that in industry. And when you're applying for a job, you can ask if there's any sort of management or leadership track you can get onto. Oh, so definitely. It's just a great, great example. And did, did you think this was the route you would go with your chemical engineering background? Have you seen your background limit you in any way, or, or is it something that has focused more on your transferable skills? Uh, I'd say it's more focused on, on my transferable skills, and I'd say that was one of the, the roadblocks that I hit in my transition, was that um, I'd say a lot of future employers were looking at me as just you know somebody with a technical experience and just thought I was fit for a technical role or, um, you know, it was just an engineer. And, and so there wasn't really that business aspect. And, and so there's actually a lot of people that are engineers here that go on with the BS in engineering that go on to get their MBA. And I was really wanting, you know, not further training, I felt like I've got my education, and I just wanted to go into the educational role. And so what I, what I kind of learned from my job transition doing informational interviews with other companies was the larger companies had kind of understood that, that, you know, you know, PhDs are people that can be leaders. Um, well, smaller companies really hadn't learned that yet. And, you know, the, I mean, there's companies that turned, I went to and I said, I mean, and said, I've got a PhD, where do you see I fit in your, your strata of employment? And they said, you know, try something with a BS plus two years experience. And I said, no, thank you. Um, and so that was something that was really important to me when I was when I was doing my job search and doing my informational interviews as I asked that, you know, what is your five to 10 year trajectory? Do you see somebody with my educate with my background being in a leadership position? And I, I was kind of shocked at, you know, how how minimal that was. And that's where I'm really passionate about cheeky scientists, because I think we're trying to change that mindset, right, that, you know, PhDs are capable of a lot of things and demonstrating that. Um, and so I'm really thankful that I landed up with a company that does see it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, your, your progress has been amazing. And I wanted to, I want to continue to kind of work backwards from where you okay. talk a little bit about the challenges that you had in your job search, whether it was okay. promotion or your initial job was, can you think back, you know, just for those who are listening and who are maybe experiencing more rejections or they're hearing mm -hmm. about jobs and they still kind of feel invisible. What yeah. challenges did you have? Not, not yet in academia, but just when you were starting your job search beyond them recommending you for you know, yeah positions. Uh, I remember so I mean starting off right away is getting the resume and the LinkedIn profile correct um, but I felt like the the resources and the tools that the community the cheeky scientist community I got that polished pretty quickly um, the next step in the, the probably the longest curve is the networking and the informational interviews and um, 
there's the, and you'll have wins and you'll have losses. And, you know, there is, the wins were when you had those informational interviews and they were really good connections and what was supposed to be a 20 minute phone call turned into an hour and an interview. And, and so those, those you can build off of the momentum and, and confidence from that. But I also faced, you know, I, I was reached out to several recruiters and was ghosted by several recruiters where recruiters wouldn't return the call. And I said, you know, what's the progress on this? Um, but, you know, have you heard from the client yet? Or um, I've had good informational interviews and um, forwarded my resume on, but then never heard anything for weeks. Um, and so there's a lot of times where just people become busy and it's, and it, and it become, become frustrating. But the thing that I noticed was, I think that the saying is it only takes one. And so it was, okay, you know, this, this door or window might be shut, but I'm just going to keep, you know, searching LinkedIn, um, the notifications group to see where are some other connections and where can I, you know, find other places, even though this door is shut, you know, I can keep looking and, and finding other opportunities somewhere else. That's amazing. Yeah. And I think if you're experiencing that rejection, it's kind of like what Whitney talked about, like that's some of the tension or friction that can help. So can you think back to a time when you were going through these rejections? Was there maybe a specific moment or a collection of them where you just said, you, you just doubled down, you were committed and you're like, I don't care anymore. I'm just going to keep going forward to the next one. Like what made you change your mindset from kind of like dabbling in your job search to this is happening? Um, I'd say once I started having my interviews where it was, you know what, I'm going to, I'm, I'm having success. You know, I, I can, I can put those failures behind me because I'm starting to have onsite interviews and, and talk to people. And that's where I really, that, that confidence finally came back. And like I, you know, you mentioned in the beginning, I, 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 I entered my job transition with very low confidence and I needed to be reminded that I had value as a PhD. Um, and, and so, I mean, for that first job uh, with Poet, I remember I was turned down for two other positions with Poet before they finally said, hey, we found this position and we want to bring you on for an onsite. And I, you know, I, I kind of sat there and I said, well, they've turned me down twice. Do I, do I go? Or, and I remember people saying it's, you know, never turned down an opportunity. So I said, you know what? Yeah, you know, this is a great time for me to network, get to onsite, get to practice. Um, and it turned into a great position. And that's, and that was something that led into, you know, the, the promotion and into the other company and everything. Um, but it really took that, that, you know, small successes, we call them quick wins, um, before I kind of had that confidence to really um, put the pedal to the metal and kind of accept, you know, and, and move on and start growing on my S-curve kind of. Yeah, uh, great points. I think for a lot of you, if you're experiencing this, you know, don't get bitter and think, well, you know, I've been rejected so many times, it's not going to do this, it's not going to work out. They've rejected me twice. Like, always stay open for the opportunity. Always see what people have to do. Always ask yourself, what if? Specifically, we were talking about with Whitney, what if? And, and, know, your, and know your value. And, and I want to point you to something Robbie said. Things turned around for him when he started talking to other people, the informational interviews. We saw that in the data on the show me the data section. Your ability, that, that we call it the extroversion. It has nothing to do with what energizes you, but has to do with you being open, communicating, talking, engaging with others. It will change your entire mindset, your outlook. It's the best way to get outside of your own head, stop isolating yourself and, and for things to, to happen. It'll put things in motion uh, that you would never become in motion without you uh, engaging with others. Last question, Robbie, you know, yeah. you mentioned a few times you had a very difficult time in academia. So if we could go all the way back to when you were in academia, what do you think was so de-energizing for you in academia and then how did you turn it around? You pulled yourself out of a very tough position. I know you said the association and other things have helped you. Was there a specific moment that you decided to turn things around, a specific 
Was there like a, a, a darkest hour that led to a, a turning point for you that you could talk about? Yeah, definitely. I'd say the thing that was the most demoralizing was the loss of control and that I didn't have control over my graduation and therefore my career path. And what had happened was, you know, I had graduated, I had my candidacy, I had um, all of the data ready, but I just had no publications. I had zero writing at, at that point. And I was a fourth year senior and I thought I was, I was stuck. And I went into the, the fall of 2017 semester saying, this has to be my number one priority is writing. However, and this is kind of the, the problem in academia, there's a conflict of interest with your advisor because my advisor still had uh, deliverables that she had to meet um, with her research grant. And so her, her priorities were continue research, continue mentoring undergrads, fixing equipment. And mine was, no, I need to sit in front of a computer and write. Um, and, and so I, I, and I couldn't control that. And I, and I sought several offices, um, you know, graduate studies director, department chair, associate dean, and, and they were also very research focused. It was about how much research dollars. Um, and, you know, thinking back to orientation, we, we talk about in industry KPIs, you know, what are goals and objectives and graduation rates of PhDs just seems to be an afterthought, even not even on the table for a lot of academic places. So the fact that I'm going to move on and graduate was no of interest to them. It was how much research was I doing. Um, and it, it really hit a low point uh, in the fall of 2017 going into Thanksgiving break and winter break. And I, I, I checked myself into a mental hospital and was receiving inpatient care. And I said, this has got to change. Like I can't go back and I've got to figure things out. Um, and I remember coming back, the, the associate dean really gave me uh, an ultimatum. He said, you can either finish uh, the research with your advisor or you can start all over with a new advisor because and this is just like not going to work out. I'm kind of going, I can't restart five years of, of research. And so I, I strongly considered going back to my um, undergraduate alma mater and starting my PhD there because it was such a toxic environment for where I was at. Um, and I think the, the, the driving force that really supported me was I had a lot of close friends and family and, and, and people and cheeky scientists that said, um, we'll, uh, the close friends and family said, if you do one more semester, if we can get you through one more semester, we will do everything we can for you to get you through that semester, if you just give us one more. Um, and so uh, I came up with, and I don't know if, I, if it shows up, Team Turbo. I made wristbands and everything for, for people that were in there that were supporting me. And I got through that one semester with you know, two or three chapters done. Um, and, and, and it took, we finally found a student affairs advocate that could advocate on my behalf to help me wrap up in the summer. Um, but that was really the, the lowest point and the turning point then um, that I could finally kind of get past academia. And then that's when I started my job search was probably in the late summer of 2018 after I defended and I, and I started that new S curve that I finally, you know, I was burnt out and I couldn't really figure out what was next. I, I lost my curiosity and my confidence. And now with the cheeky scientist tools, I was starting that new S curve and I could finally, you know, move past it and, and, and find new things. Um, and a lot, and, it, and I'd say I, a very team oriented person that I, I'd say it was because of the support of cheeky scientists and friends and family that I were able to kind of overcome it. Um, but yeah, that was, that was probably one of my lowest points for sure that I had to overcome. Well, thanks for sharing that, Robbie. I know I yeah. told the full story to everybody and there's lots of support uh, pouring out for you in the chat box. Uh, oh, that. Too. So, you know, whatever you're facing, if you're having, you know, mental health issues, if you're feeling isolated, uh, if you're just struggling and stressed, what Robbie kept coming back to is, you know, his willingness to talk to other people. Yeah. I mean, you know, even if 
not everybody was receptive. Him going to the deans and different departments, friends, family, the association, all of these things, you know, that that's those big five personality traits, the, the two big ones that we kept talking about, extroversion and the ability to work with others, you know, it says agreeableness, but really the ability to work with others, to come to a solution, to create a, a wristband, something that can help focus you forward, where you can find people who will support you. Don't think everyone's going to support you, but there are people out there who will, and you got to be open to it. Just ask. As for Robbie, the rest is history. Congratulations, Robbie, on all your career success and this leadership program for you at this amazing company. We're all very excited for you, and I appreciate you sharing your story. Awesome. Thanks for the opportunity, Isaiah. Robbie. Please thank Robbie in the chat box if you haven't already. Amazing interview for our career interview and, and, and much more uh, beyond career there. So thank you, Robbie. Okay, so that takes us to the end of the first 2020 Cheeky Scientist radio show. As far as the public portion of the show, we are going to turn to the members only portion of the radio show now. Uh, if you are a Cheeky Scientist associate, you have access to this. If not, go to cheekyscientist.com slash association dash learn dash more or phdsgethired.com. It's a bit easier to remember. Put your name and email in. We will send you all of our updates. We'll give you a chance to subscribe to us in terms of our blog, our uh, podcast, and all of our free job search materials. We'll send you a, a lot of free materials, including materials on how to update your resume, your LinkedIn. Uh, we'll connect you with other PhDs and we will help you get hired. Thank you all for being here. Remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. This takes us to the end of another Cheeky Scientist radio show podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more about transitioning into your first or next job in industry, just go to phdsgethired.com. Go to phdsgethired.com. We will send you all of our free training materials that will help you start your job search now or help you take it to the next level in business. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Bum, 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 bum,